0: The Anchor of the Soul, with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. We live in a world in which there are thousands of different religious organizations What we want to do is look at what the Bible has to say about the New Testament church. And as we look at this particular theme, I want us to note a couple of passages of Scripture in connection with this. The first, of course, Colossians chapter 1 in verse 18, and then we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 17. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, And he is the head of the body, that is, Jesus is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. I want to first of all call your attention to the origination of the church. Then we'll look at the organization of the church, and then thirdly, the operation of the church. By way of organization, I want to begin by emphasizing the fact that Jesus himself preached about the church. As a matter of fact, Jesus had a lot to say about the church. You recall in Matthew chapter four at verse 17, when Jesus began his public ministry, Matthew said he began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the kingdom that Jesus was talking about was the same kingdom that John the Baptist, his forerunner also preached about. In Matthew chapter three, verses one and two, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Christ, the one who was to prepare the hearts and minds of people to be receptive of the Christ, echoed that same message. He said, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Now, you can go back to the book of Daniel in chapter 2, and you'll read where Daniel interprets a dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire. And the king that or rather the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had troubled him. And so Daniel had the opportunity to interpret that dream. And he talked about the rise and fall of four successive world empires, beginning with Babylon. And so in verse 44, he said, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. The kingdom that Daniel was foretelling of was the church, the same institution that John the Baptist began preaching about, the same institution that Jesus began his public ministry preaching about. So as we think about the preaching and teaching of Jesus as it related to the kingdom of God or the church, we see that it's emphasized in the New Testament. But then also I think we need to understand that Jesus promised to build the church. In Matthew chapter 16, you recall in verse 13, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do men say that I the son of man am? And they gave him a variety of answers. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some, Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, note if you would in verse 18. Jesus promised to build his church. First of all, the church belongs to him. And then secondly, he promised to build one church. He said, I will build my church. That is singular in nature. Now, as we think about the fact that Jesus promised to build the church, the Bible tells us not only did he promise to build it, but he purchased it. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Luke tells us that the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the Ephesian elders, instructed them with these words, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus paid for the blood-bought body that we call the church, didn't he? As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he loved the church and gave himself for it in Ephesians 5, verse 25. So when you begin to look at the scriptures, you find out that Jesus preached about the church, he built the church, he promised to build the church, and he purchased the church. So having said that, look now at verse 18 and listen again to what Paul said. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. The word beginning here means origin, active cause, the source from which something comes into being. All Paul is saying here is that the church originated with whom? Jesus. Started by Jesus. Jesus is the one that built it. He promised to build it. God is the one that planned it. God was the architect, according to Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Jesus was simply the agent through whom the church came into being. Now, having said this, let me ask this question. How many of you have ever been told that you're a part of the church church? It was started by Alexander Campbell. Has anyone ever called you a Campbellite? Raise your hand if you would. Anybody ever called you a Campbellite? When I first began preaching, I remember I was in a retirement home on one occasion, and I'm still very wet behind the ears, and I'm talking to a gentleman about becoming a Christian, and I was telling him that he needed to be baptized into Christ to become a child of God. And there was a fellow across the room that said they ought to run that Campbellite out of here okay well I'm not a Campbellite never have been Alexander Campbell despite the misconception did not start the church of Christ now it's one thing to make that statement to assert that it's another to prove it isn't it well let me just go back by way of history for a minute In about A.D. 57, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. When Paul wrote the book of Romans in chapter 16, here's what he said. The churches of Christ salute you. Now, Alexander Campbell was born in 1788. Isn't it interesting, 1,700 years earlier, Paul would say the churches of Christ salute you. Now, that ought to be enough right there. Book chapter verse. The Church of Christ existed in the first century, didn't it? It's what Paul said. Now, think about this by way of history for a minute. Alexander Campbell was born in 1788. His father Thomas was born in 1763 in North Ireland. Thomas Campbell came to America in 1807. Alexander Campbell was born in 1788. He arrived in New York City, Well, according to historians, August the 3rd, 1809. That's significant because historically speaking, there's a congregation near Bridgeport, Alabama called the Rocky Springs Church of Christ. This congregation traces its beginnings back to 1803. Now think about that for a minute. You have a congregation of God's people meeting in the state of Alabama in 1803. Alexander Campbell had not even arrived in America in 1803. And then near McMinnville, Tennessee, the old Philadelphia Church of Christ. Some trace the the origin of this congregation back to 1798. They say that it was at least 1805 that it began. So quite possibly 1798, at the latest 1805. Thomas Campbell didn't come to America until when? 1807. Alexander Campbell didn't come to America until when? 1809. Did Thomas and Alexander Campbell, and by the way, they were a part of the Presbyterian Church, did they found the Church of Christ? No, they didn't. Who founded the Church of Christ? Jesus did. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church wears what name? The name of Christ, doesn't it? Why? Because Christ is the one that is the head of the church. It belongs to him, doesn't it? Now, let me also share some other information with you. Sometimes it's good to hear from, well, sometimes it's good to go back to the source and hear what Alexander Campbell had to say about those who coined the phrase Campbellites or those who tried to say that members of the church are Campbellites. Listen to a couple of excerpts. In 1826, Alexander Campbell said, some religious editors in Kentucky call those who are desirous of seeing the ancient order of things restored, the restorationers, the Campbellites. He said, this may go well with some, but all who fear God and keep his commands will pity and deplore the weakness and folly of those who either think to convince or to persuade by such means. And then there is this. When Alexander Campbell visited New Orleans on one occasion, the commercial bulletin announced his visit to the city and referred to him as the founder of a religious denomination. Campbell immediately addressed a letter to the editors of the paper. He thanked them for the complimentary notice of his visit. And then, here's what he had to say. You have done me, gentlemen, too much honor in saying that I am the founder of the denomination, quite numerous and respectable in many portions of the West, technically known as Christians, but more commonly as Campbellites. I have always repudiated all human heads and human names for the people of the Lord and shall feel Very thankful if you will correct the erroneous impression which your article may have made in thus representing me as the founder of a religious denomination. So from Alexander Campbell's own lips, what do you have? You have him saying, look, I didn't start the Church of Christ. I didn't found the Church of Christ. Now, had he founded the Church of Christ, don't you think he would have taken credit for it? He didn't do it. Listen, please, very carefully. I've said before and I'll say it again. If I am a member of the church that Thomas and Alexander Campbell started, I'm in the wrong church. I don't want to be a part of any church founded by any man. I want to be a member of the church that I read about in the New Testament, that is, in the Bible. The Bible talks about, in a very specific way, the church, doesn't it? Can we we simply be members of the body of Christ, the church of Christ? The answer is yes. Now, by way of history... In Glasgow, well, really, in Glasgow, Scotland, did you know that the Church of Christ was meeting in Morrison Court, established somewhere between 1772 and 1782? They had 180 members in 1818. This group worshipped each Lord's Day, and as to the order of services, they followed the pattern of Acts, chapter 2, where they continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The whole idea that Alexander Campbell was the founder of the church is false. He didn't start it. Never claimed to have started it. Neither did his father. As a matter of fact, by way of history, Alexander Campbell wasn't baptized into Jesus Christ until 1812. He believed in original sin. He was, as I mentioned a moment ago, Presbyterian. And what he had was an earnest desire to see what the Bible had to say. He was honest and very intelligent. He had an open mind, as a matter of fact, with regard to baptism and infant baptism. Historians state that he went to one particular individual on one occasion and he said, I want you to give me every bit of information that you have pertaining to infant baptism. I want to study it. He studied the subject for about one year and then came to the conclusion it was wrong. Alexander Campbell really did what we're pleading for people to do today. He took the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, and said, you know what, let's just go back and follow the New Testament. Now, by way of illustration, there is a global seed vault that is located in the north some 800 miles beyond the Arctic Circle. What's interesting about this global Seed Vault. It was opened by the Norwegian government in February of 2008. And they have a very secure location where they have collected some 4,000 seeds. It's amazing. And the intent is that let's just say there were some catastrophic, well some catastrophe occurring on planet Earth. And let's just say that a specific plant happened to be annihilated. Someone could go to this vault, take that seed, plant it in the ground, and what would happen? Germinate and bring forth life, wouldn't it? So, as members of the church, what can we do? We can take the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, and we can go to any place on planet Earth, and we can be New Testament Christians, can't we? The Bible makes Christians only. When you take the word of God and you take the unadulterated seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, you can make the New Testament church. The seed of the kingdom will perpetuate that, will it not? Now, I bring all this up because there are a whole lot of folks in our world today. They have no concept of New Testament Christianity. They really believe in their heart of hearts that Alexander Campbell started the Church of Christ. That name Campbellite coined many years ago is not as prominent as it once was, but there are a lot of folks that still believe that. They still think that. And I want you, when people... When people say you're a Campbellite or you're associated with the church that the Campbells, that they founded, I want you to say, wait a minute. That's not the case. Because in Romans 16, 16, I can read where Paul said the churches of Christ, and that goes back to the first century, 1,700 years before Alexander Campbell was ever thought of, or Thomas Campbell for that matter. You can say, look, I am simply a member of the church that I read about in Scripture. I'm a Christian. Nothing more And nothing less. Now, what about the organizational structure of the church? Is it possible for us to identify the organizational structure of the church? Now, if we take the seed of the kingdom, which is the Word of God, we can duplicate the New Testament church, can't we? There has to be a standard, a rule, doesn't there? Well, Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3 that we are to walk by this rule. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul would say, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it mean to do something by the authority of Christ? It means to do it according to his word, doesn't it? If we do something in the name of Christ, we're simply saying we're doing it by his authority. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, according to Matthew 28, 18. God the Father said in Matthew 17, verse 5, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. So whatever we want to do, religiously speaking, we need to listen to what King Jesus says. Because after all, he is the king of the kingdom, isn't he? Now in Colossians chapter 1, he is identified as the head of the body, the church. So what about the organizational structure of the universal church? Is it possible for us... To look at what the New Testament says and come to an understanding of how that organizational structure is defined. The answer is yes. So, having said that, listen again to what Paul said. And he is the head of the body, the church. Universally speaking, there is one head. Who is that one head? Jesus Christ. Now, I point that out because there are some people who believe that there are two heads. The idea is that Jesus is the head of the church residing in heaven. But since he has gone to heaven and he is seated at the Father's right hand, what we need is somebody to regulate the conduct of the church here on earth. And so we have a vicar of Christ here on earth, sometimes referred to as a potentate. Well, Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the only potentate. Now, if you're a king, you have to have a kingdom, don't you? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world in John 18, verse 36. The kingdom we're talking about is the church. Now, universally speaking, Jesus is the one head. The church is the one body. So you have one head and you have one body. Some say you have two heads and one body. Others would say you have one head and many bodies. And I want you to hear what Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. So what what is the body? What is this one body? He's the head of the body of the church. Well, who's the head over the church? He put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. So, biblically speaking... You have one head and one body, don't you? The head's Jesus, the body's the church. Well, those of us who are Christians, we are the church. We are the ecclesia, the called out ones, the community of the saved. We are baptized believers, are we not? We've been baptized into Christ. When we're baptized into Christ, listen to what Paul said, we're also put in the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, by one spirit were you all baptized into one body. Well, what body? The church. Now, think with me for a moment as we talk about the universal church. Had you been present on Pentecost Day? And let's just say that you stood back and watched some 3,000 people obey the gospel. They repented of their sins. They were baptized into Christ. And the Bible says in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who, who were being saved. Let's just say that you went up to one of those people and you asked them this question. What church did you join? What, what religious affiliation do you now have? What do you think they'd have said? Here's what they would have said. I'm a member of the church. Well, what church? The church of the Bible. In AD 32 or 33, Jesus established the church. He only established one. It's the one body. There were no denominations. Catholicism was not a part of the world At that point in time. Departures from the faith were foretold by Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 4, etc. Here's the point. Catholicism really... Well, we talk about the church that was established on Pentecost. Catholicism grew out of a distortion of what we might call church government. Rather than having a plurality of men functioning as elders over a local congregation. The decision was made to have a bishop over maybe a plurality of churches. And then it grew out of that all the way down until when you have somebody who says, you know what? We need one person over the whole thing, the pope. Now, historically speaking, you have the establishment of the church and then you have the Catholic church And then what we would call modern-day denominationalism, which arose out of the intent to reform the Catholic Church. So you go back to the first century, and you ask those people, okay, what church did you belong to? They would say, I belong to the church that we read about in Scripture. That is, I belong to the Church of God, to the Church of Christ. Now, the Church of Christ is not the exclusive name used in scripture to identify the body of Christ. There are a number of names that could be used, biblically speaking. For example, the word church is found in the American Standard Version some 95 times. We read about the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16. We can read about the church of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. The church of the living God in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in our day and time, we are so accustomed... To the various denominations that abound that when you talk to people about being a member of the church it's foreign to them we're not saying we want people to be a member of the quote unquote church of christ denomination as if we are a better denomination than others what we're saying is we want to be members of the church that you read about in the bible that is a noble plea now can we do that in a kind and loving way i hope so Does it matter if we're a member of the part of the body of Christ? Does it matter if we're a part of the true church, the right church? Well, Paul said in Ephesians 5 verse 23 that Christ is the Savior of the body. And those who are in the body have been baptized into Christ. So if you haven't been baptized into Christ, are you a part of the body? The answer is no. If you're not a part of the church that you read about in the Bible, are you saved? Think about that. That's why it's imperative for us to go back to the Bible. Now, listen, please, there are a lot of folks, even there are a lot of folks in the church today, that is, who are members of the church of Christ that have the mistaken notion that we are a part of the Stone Campbell movement. That's what they think. And they're wrong, dead wrong. We're not a part of any movement, or rather, we are not the result of any movement founded or formulated by man. So, organizationally speaking, there's the universal church and then there is the local church. Can I identify the the local church from a biblical perspective? Now just think about this for a minute. In most most denominations today, the preacher is what? He's the pastor, isn't he? And then you have a board of deacons functioning under him. I wanna ask you a question, is that biblical? Is it biblical to have one man serving as a pastor and then have a board of deacons functioning under the pastor. It's not biblical. Well, how do I know that? Because in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, they ordained elders in every church, plural. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said he left Titus in Crete for the purpose of putting elders in every city, in every church. Elders must meet the criterion set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Titus chapter 1, verse 5 and following. Elders are the bishops overseers, pastors of the church, and those terms are synonymous. Sometimes I see on a billboard outside, it will read something like so-and-so's name, and it might even say pastor so-and-so, and and then beside that, bishop. It's the same office, and it is a plurality, biblically speaking. There is no one-man eldership, one-man bishopry, etc., one-man pastoral system. Deacons, Deacons function under the oversight of the elders, don't they? They have to meet the criterion set forth in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. And in looking at that criterion, you see that they are special servants. Now, every Christian is a member of the body of Christ. We're all brethren, according to Colossians 1, verse 2. But there are certain individuals that function as elders. Some as deacons, some as evangelists, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. Well, why is this so important? Because, again, we go back to the seed principle. Do we want to be the New Testament church? There are a lot of churches in Desoda County. A lot of churches in the state of Mississippi and around the world. The question is, what does the Bible say? Can Can I identify the church that I read about in the New Testament? Very quickly, just some things that we could ask. And we're not going to finish this lesson, but let me just throw out a couple of things. First and foremost, where did that church begin? Isaiah said the church would begin in the city of Jerusalem. Is that where it began? Acts chapter 2 says it was. Well, what about the time frame? The church began in about A.D. 32, 33. If a church says they began prior to that date, it's not the New Testament church. If they began after that date, again, can't be the New Testament church. Why? Because the church that we read about began in Jerusalem, began at a specific time, the timeline, of course, in the days of the Roman kings. And then you could ask this question. What do they teach about how to become a member of the church? Does the Bible explicitly tell us what to do to become a member of the church? Did Peter not say, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? Well, what if if I'm attending someplace and they say, you know what, if you want to be a Christian, all you need to do is pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. You're intelligent. Let me ask you, is that what the Bible teaches? If that's what they teach, would they be the true church? Think about it. You draw the conclusion. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. If we do what they did, then we can become what they were. You know what they were? Simply Christians. They were believers, Acts 5, verse 14. They were disciples. They were brethren. They were Christians, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. I say all of this because we need to see very clearly the church of the New Testament there are identifying marks. Again, think about the government of the church. Universally, how many heads do they proclaim? How many bodies do they proclaim? Locally, are they governed by elders? Do they have deacons? Do they look at those who comprise the church as members? It's imperative that we ask our friends, our family members, and our neighbors to consider these thoughts. And I hope that you understand By identifying some of the things that we're talking about, in no way do I ever want to appear haughty, arrogant, ugly, mean-spirited, in no way. But I know this, only the truth will set people free. We have to tell people the truth. Paul said we speak the truth in love. But to withhold the truth of God from somebody, that's a terrible thing. Paul asked the question on one occasion, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Look, only truth will set you free. Are you a New Testament Christian? Have you done what they did on Pentecost Day? Do you believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Would you be willing to repent of your sins, confess His name, be buried with Christ in baptism? If you'll do that, the Bible assures us God will add you to the body. Acts 2, verse 47. And if you'll be faithful until death, the Bible says God will give you a home in heaven. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Fasten to the rock which cannot move